Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. One day, I was coming out of this park on my way home. We flagged down like a cab, and it was a minivan. When it stopped in front of me, I moved towards the window, and I see the guy with a big old handgun in his lap. Right, dressed Jeez. in black. And I saw four other guys in the back of the van, all with hoods, with the ski masks, right? All in black with M16s in their hands. And they opened up the doors and just raised those weapons on us and told us to turn around. And they were asking me, where were you guys going? I said, man, we were just going home. And then they just turned around. You guys gang member, we all said, no. They, they weren't able to see my tattoos, right? But they had us lift our shirts. And literally, we looked at each other and we said, this is it. This is where we die. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking into many different stories that share one thing in common. People taking the law into their own hands. We started this journey with the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing which explores the vigilante killing of Kenrex McElroy in 1981 in Skidmore, Missouri. It's a story of one town and one bully who many think got what was coming to him. But what happens when an entire society is plagued by a bad element? Gangs, drug dealers, invaders. And who determines if a bad element really is bad? And does the act of rooting out one bad element just create another? This episode, I'm looking into vigilantes who find their power in numbers, who band together under a banner and a name to enforce their version of justice. There's a long tradition of such groups dating all the way back to 1186 in Sicily, where a secret society calling themselves the Vendicatori, literally the Avengers, donned masks and avenged wrongdoing. That was the image I had in my head when I called up Salvadoran-American journalist Roberto Lovato to learn about an anonymous vigilante group based in El Salvador called La Sombra Negra, whose mission is to exterminate the gangs that plague the country. Gangs like MS-13. What is La Sombra Negra? La Sombra Negra means black shadow. It's a, it's a extermination squad linked to the police and the military in El Salvador, and it's exterminating gangs. But you can't really understand them unless you understand 
the whole history of Death Squad as a solution to El Salvador's political problems. Those problems came to a head in the Salvadoran Civil War, a bloody conflict from 1979 to 1992 between left-wing guerrillas and a military-led government. Before the war, Death Squads operated as a systematic policy of the U.S.-backed government of El Salvador. And, you know, those killings were targeting opposition people that threatened the economic model, the, the political status quo of the country. And this is really key to understand what's happening with the gangs. The war in the 80s left 80,000 dead, 85% of whom were killed by their own government. But then there was an amnesty declared again. And so then all the criminals that perpetrated all those massacres, death squad operatives, killers, mass killers. Nobody went to jail for that. People were given medals for that. They're going to baptisms, to weddings, to funerals. You know, they're your neighbor. They wash their car. They, you know, their daughter played with your daughter. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're just quote unquote normal everyday people in the society that just is silenced about its mass murdering past. I mean, I had one of the top gang leaders tell me, look, see that guy on television? That guy got away with murder. He was talking about a politician who's a known killer who's now in the legislature. So a gang member sees that and says, man, I think that guy got away with it. I know we can get away with it. And what about the cops who feel powerless to stop the gang violence? I mean, I've interviewed police who've actually admitted to me that they're doing this. Donning the mask, joining groups like La Sombra Negra. There was a resignation that I found chilling because I'm dealing with this guy who, in addition to killing people by day as a cop, by night he's killing young men under cover of vengeance. What I got from interviewing guys like that is you're exposed to some of the worst things that humanity has to offer in the most violent country on earth. So you're exposed to this on a daily, weekly basis, you know, just awful killing and bloodshed. You're underpaid. You watch as the gangs, in fact, do target and kill your, your partners, your friends. And you see the government unable to really solve the gang problem or your problems. And so then you're like, you know what, and you're just, you got this heavy trauma and you just decide, hey man, I'm gonna take it belong to my own hands. There are plenty who think of La Sombra Negra as dark heroes, driving around San Salvador in unlicensed vehicles, capturing, torturing, and executing vicious gang members. Kidnapping, extortion, murder. The calling cards of MS-13, a brutal and highly organized gang. It's join the gang or be killed by the gang. You have a gang called ms 13. They are the equivalent or worse than Al-Qaeda. These are true animals. But those so-called true animals include people like the mild-mannered Alex Sanchez, who you heard at the top of this episode. He's a former member of MS-13, and he was describing the moment he was nearly executed by La Sombra Negra. Alex was happy to complicate my naive understanding of gangs and death squads, and the cycle of violence that's been tearing at El Salvador for half a century. The violence that led his family to flee to the U.S. Coming into the United States, the neighborhoods where I came to live in were hard neighborhoods. 
there were gangs in the area, there was drug use, there were alcoholism. We were easy prey for robbery, harassment. So we felt vulnerable. And that's how when I started hanging around this bad crowd of youth at school. The other Salvadoran kids, who had formed their own gang in response to the dozens of other gangs around them. They were not afraid to express who they were in regards to their accent, their language, the place that they were from. And that's how they survived in groups. So eventually, I just gave into this life of drugs and, and violence, and eventually, uh, you know, assaulting people. I ended up going to juvenile hall, to prison, and from prison, I ended up being deported. Alex faced deportation with a strange relief. He thought he was going to get away from gang violence, start over in a new world, maybe get a job in the tourist industry because he spoke English. But as soon as I arrived down there, the following day, I got received a, a death threat. I was like, well, who knows I'm here? <laughs> I just came yesterday. And I found an old rusty machete, right? And I said, I have to protect me. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they want. I don't know if they're going to try to kill me tomorrow. And I sharped that machete the whole night and thinking about what was I going to do the following day. The story we're often told about gangs like MS-13 is that they originate in violent places like El Salvador and that they're importing their violence here. I was shocked to learn that MS-13 formed in Los Angeles and was exported to El Salvador. Alex was shocked, too, to find the gang he'd left behind in L.A. waiting for him in his country of birth. He was trying to leave the gang life behind, and this made it difficult but he had an even bigger problem. There was these commercials or people that came out on TV talking about they were members of this Sombra Negra and Mm. they were sending a warning to all the gangs. If they didn't stop being a gang member in five days, they will start executing them. These death squads were sending out flyers in different communities with the names of the people they were targeting. So all of a sudden I saw my name in one of the lists And I left for that neighborhood, so I was homeless, staying in people's homes that I knew from here. I had no choice but to join the gang again, right? To be with them 24-7 now. Because if I went home, this death squad were going to kill me. Alex doesn't call La Sombra Negra a vigilante group. He calls them a death squad. Given their methods, it's an accurate description. And after the five days went by, you started seeing bodies showing up, hung from light poles, stripped naked, their hands tied behind their backs, shot in the back of the head like the death squad used to do in the 80s. Hmm. So many people that I knew ended up getting executed by them. So I couldn't be on my own anymore. It was easy to be targeted when you were on your own. So Hmm. that's why I was pushed back into the gang. It was a lose-lose situation. And when La Sombra Negra found him that day in the minivan with the M16s, that could have been it. This is it, this is where we die. But for the strange accidental grace of not lifting his shirt high enough. They weren't able to see my tattoos, right? But they had us lift our shirts. And I didn't have nothing on my stomach or my lower back, right? It was Mm -hmm. just my upper torso where I had my tattoos. And the guys just, all of a sudden, we're here, we, we hear the doors closed. And uh, they take off 
And it took us about five minutes to get our soul back in our body because our soul was had left us. You know, we knew we were gonna die at that moment. And that's when I basically said, I gotta get the hell out of El Salvador. To Alex, a sombra negra wasn't a solution to a problem. It was just another problem. The majority of people there wanna execute gang members because they feel that by getting rid of the problem, it'll stop. But in reality, you can get rid of every gang member right now and you're gonna have tomorrow another generation of, of youth. You have gang members trying to change their lives and they're still being killed, right? But you have gang members that are being forced to continue by their own gang members in the gang because there's no room to spare anybody because they're under attack. You treat people like animals, they're gonna respond like animals because there's no room for choices. There's no room to give up and there's no rule of law because there's no systems to get these gang members to incorporate into something else because they don't believe in reentry. Mm-hmm. The wound is so deep, Central America overall, it's not ready for a peaceful approach to this thing. Mm-hmm. So they want to stop at all costs right now. And if social cleansing is one of them, so be it. Social cleansing doesn't have the same ring to it as Masked Avenger. And yet, a sizable portion of the public supports these methods. According to journalist Roberto Lovato... I mean, like, one of every three people in El Salvador support exterminating the gangs. Why do you think that so many people look at the Sombra Negra and similar death squads like heroes who are cleaning up the community? It's denial. It's the desire for a quick solution. It's desperation in the case of El Salvador where, you know, you have lived consistent violence for 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think there's a mythologization of violence, whether it's Mm -hmm. a video game, whether it's the Avengers series, a billion dollars, even Black Panther, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, back in the 70s in the days of Charles Bronson and Death Wish. These are all narratives where violence is held up as a last resort of the good guy who really doesn't want to use it but has to because... Nothing else is going to solve it. The uh, rotten fruits of death squads and vigilantes as a solution to social problems are more than proven in all the piles of bodies that keep piling up. Right? And this pile of bodies, in Lovato's analysis, leads back to the U.S. and our involvement in Central America. If you look at some of their major perpetrators of mass murder, they were trained, funded, you know, protected by the United States military, by the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. So the impunity doesn't just extend to El Salvador. It includes Republican and Democratic administrations in the United States. Since the 1990s, the U.S. government and the Salvadoran government have consistently used what's known as mano dura, hard hand policies to fight the gangs, that every time they've done mano dura, ever since 2004 to the present, you've had a marked increase in spike in violence in El Salvador. Now, I don't in any way, shape or form want to be seem to be condoning 
mass murdering gangs, right? Because that's a fact as well. Gangs are responsible for not all the violence in El Salvador, but a, a, a major chunk of the violence. That said, however, you, you do have a situation where the, the government continues the historical pattern of trying to solve social problems through violent means. Mm-hmm. Violence does begin more violence. That's not a, that's not just not a cliche. That's a reality, and for any student of violence, and I've seen the bones of these kids, and I've gone to the, to the to the forensics labs where they're still, actually dealing with the bones of massacres that took place in the 80s, next to the table of the person killed at a mosote with a machete hack in their head, is the skeleton of a more recent death of a gang killing. In some cases, the death of a guy who was suspected of being killed by the police in El Salvador. It was that chilling image, the bodies next to bodies from successive decades, that really hammered home for me how important historical context is. At first glance, La Sombra Negra, hunting down violent gangs, seemed like a badass real-life version of The Punisher— but their actions look very different when you see them as part of this ongoing cycle of violence. The vigilantes seem less like a solution, the gangs less like a problem, and both more like symptoms of a deeper cause. As Roberto put it, they need to be exterminated, it's poverty. That's a sentiment I can get behind, even if it means looking at our beloved Batman as a rich dude who drives into the inner city to beat up poor people. But poverty isn't the whole story. For our impulse to band together in groups, to identify bad elements and roust them out or punish them, crops up everywhere. It's human. It's deep and tribal. And as the Legion of Doom in Fort Worth, Texas demonstrates, even the comfortable and privileged will take the law into their own hands, if only for kicks. The young men who once called themselves the Legion of Doom looked like model citizens as they entered court for sentencing. In fact, they aspired to be lawyers and businessmen. District Judge Don Leonard said he couldn't understand why these honor students and athletes turned to pipe bombs and armed threats. They used violence to intimidate alleged thieves and drug dealers. When the story broke in 1985, it made headlines across the country an unprecedented rash of violence centered around Pascal High School in Fort Worth, Texas. Top students and star athletes arrested in connection with up to 35 felonies. Arson, pipe bombings, animal cruelty, shotgun blasts, and swastikas. These high school vigilantes called themselves the Legion of Doom, and they claimed they were trying to clean up the school, that they were targeting thieves and dopers, Honest kids, sick of drugs and violence, taking a stand, rooting out the bad element, only to realize, too late, that violence corrupts. From a story perspective, it's practically made for TV, a perfect packaged morality play. And sure enough, a year later, the TV movie Brotherhood of Justice premiered, starring Keanu Reeves and Kiefer Sutherland. In it, Reeves leads a crew of well-intentioned overachievers who police their school after it's been vandalized. Their hearts are in the right place. 
they're the protagonists after all. And when things get dangerously out of hand, Reeves turns them all into the police, preserving their moral integrity. That's the Hollywood take. And as you might guess, there's a lot wrong with it. Were these kids vigilantes? Were their intentions good? Why didn't they end up in prison? I wanted to know the true story, so I called up E.R. Bills, a journalist out of Fort Worth, who was in high school at the same time as the Legion of Doom, and who has since written extensively about them. The first thing he pointed out to me was that this violence and the attitudes that motivated it was present before they officially organized. Before they became the Legion of Doom, they were going around and rousting homosexuals and persons of color. There was a park in the area and they called it Fag Park. And they would go through there and harass homosexuals that were rumored to meet there and throw beer bottles at them and yell obscenities. And then same thing in the African-American communities. They'd see a black man walking on the side of the road and then pull over and roll down the window and say, well, excuse me, sir, could you tell me what it's like to be a nigger? Ugh. Right? And so this guy's like, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the guy's thinking. Probably scared out of his mind. A blazer full of seven white kids. You know, they would throw beer bottles at them, yell profanities. It wasn't harmless. And this was all a lot before of the Legion of Doom. Yeah, before it was just goofing around, but now it was a mantra. It was something they were going to pursue at the school. At the time, the Fort Worth police said they detected no racial pattern to the violence. This, despite the fact that the Legion of Doom was using a swastika as their symbol. The film Brotherhood of Justice turned that swastika into a red hand. Is it true that school administrators, like, suggested that they didn't actually know what the swastika meant, and that's yes, that why they... But, you know, when I saw that comment, oh, you know, I doubt they even know what a swastika meant. Really? That's outrageous. That's asinine. That's not true. Um, they did know, and, and not just what a, a swastika meant, they also burned crosses in a couple yards. They knew who the Ku Klux Klan were, too. I mean, so <laughs> this was white privilege run amok. According to E.R. Bills, this didn't come out of nowhere. It was part of a cultural legacy. They were top scholars at the school, you know, valedictorian material, or, or really good athletes from really well-to-do families. A lot of these kids, their folks' parents had gone to Pascal. Back in the good old days, when there wasn't much of a multicultural presence at the school. And it was more just like a step in the process of them becoming, you know, productive little frat boys becoming more privileged and having access to more power and more economic opportunity. The kids there, the parents, the grandparents of, of these kids that were involved with the Legion of Doom, they didn't care much for poor kids. They didn't care much minorities. At Pascal, the white population was about 50%, and it was about 23% African-American and 22 or 23% Mexican-American. And I think they looked around and they felt a lot like white folks in the country do today. This doesn't work for me. Their slogan might as well have been, make Pascal great again. So they operated under the auspices that there were minorities uh, pushing drugs, but the reports from the police suggested everybody they harassed and threatened was innocent. So I don't think they found a single one um, mm. that was guilty, but they all fit the bill. You know, they were white trash or they were persons of color or whatever. And so they started harassing these folks they would get carried away. They started building pot bombs. 
They threw Molotov cocktails at people's houses and their yards. As bad as a pipe bomb is, what I can't get out of my head is what they did to the cat. They didn't gut the cat, actually. They tried several different times to smother it, couldn't. So then they bashed its brains out on the backside of a car, and uh, <clears throat> they split it from stem to stern. And they draped it over the steering wheel of one of the kids so that its guts and its blood dripped down, you know, in the car, on the seats. God. You know, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not how you, normal. That's How do you go from being a just kind of being a bully who picks on people who who you know don't fit the bill to psychopathic stuff like that how do you, you I mean, I where were believe. the adults like uh, my question is like where were the adults because we're still talking about juveniles here and no question how, that's a good point so there was kind of a tradition of pranksterism and hazing of folks that historically have been on the receiving end of harassment and then just been forced to take it. The whole community, they all preferred to focus on this idea that they were vigilantes and, and sort of mitigate, sort of downplay, sort of the really outrageous sort of psychopathic actions that these kids took. You know, they were just trying to clean up their school, you know? They were trying to move the bad elements. Well, that's not exactly the case. The LA Times, the Chicago Tribune labeled them as terrorists. Uh, the AP even called them terrorists. How did the acts become so creepy, so <laughs> abhorrent, you know, and frightening and sadistic? I, I'm not exactly sure. You know, as much as they condemned the use of drug use and drug use around the school, some of it involved drugs, some of it definitely involved alcohol. And two or three of the worst incidents occurred on the <laughs> the 18th birthday of the ringleader. And they just had an all-nighter and they threw Molotov cocktails and blew up a car. And a far cry from the morally tortured Keanu Reeves in Brotherhood of Justice, who turned himself and his vigilante brothers in when things went too far. Now, Amanda, if a young black man in the 80s, you know, or even now, crucified a cat and laid across a kid's steering wheel or, or blown up a car with a pot bomb, you, you know, you think they would have gotten off with a slap on the wrist, probation? These kids had 33 indictments against them when it was all done and got probation and 30 days in jail for the ringleaders. But still. You think a black kid could have got that in Texas or even, well, anywhere, really? I don't, I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. you know, or even a poor white kid. I really, <laughs> I don't think that would have been the case. But the right. Fort Worth wasn't going right. to stand for that. These kids weren't going to go down, not like normal kids would have. You know, we're talking about powerful, super rich parents. Uh, in some cases, um, people that had pool and, uh, it would not have behooved them to come down with both feet on any member of this group. That was the cry. Well, they're, they're young. This is going to ruin their life. They won't be able to get a job. They won't be able to blah, 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 blah. You know, the affluenza defense. The affluence that he enjoyed, you know, warped his sense of responsibility. He didn't understand accountability. I think the judge did the right thing was fair. I tried to look at each individual, what he'd done, and and what he was and what he could be. So there are people today, still, who were there at Pascal who won't talk about it because they fear reprisal, whether the work they're at or the business they run or whatever might lose business over it. I mean, they, they don't want to talk about it. But the Legion of Doom themselves, 
Oh, they're just doesn't this confirm their behavior? I don't think they're repentant. They might not be, but I would point out that we don't actually know. Every group is still a collection of individuals. One thing the movie Brotherhood of Justice does well is that it shows strife and disagreement among the vigilantes. No gang is a monolith. But if there are former members of the Legion of Doom who don't regret what they did, that may be because when official justice caught up with them, they were really never held accountable. The indictments could have been a lot heavier, including organized crime. And that's what the Fort Worth police wanted. Destruction of property, you know, attempted murder. Uh, You know, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, if that pot bomb had stayed on that window, uh, there's no telling what it would have done to those people. They wanted harsher indictments, but the DA wasn't going to have any part of it. It would have been career suicide. I mean, big, big, you know, supporters, big backers. They made it go away. Or basically, they mitigated it so that it was not as bad as it was and then gave them probation. It's a travesty. If that's the case, you know, what is a vigilante? Is a vigilante just an entitled terrorist? <laughs> and, and, you know, who got away with it because we decided not to help hold them accountable? You know, the fact of the matter is there's a long, scary tradition of vigilantism in Texas. Um, you know, Texas is a place where white folks have burned two or three dozen black folks at the stake, okay? And it's what they call frontier justice. So in some circles, obviously they were viewed as vigilantes and maybe in their own minds, they considered themselves, you know, that. But you make a good point. To be a vigilante, there's a sense of entitlement that predicates that. You know better, you're better, they're less, they're evil, they're subhuman, whatever. They look at it differently. There's a sense of entitlement and privilege about assuming that role. And it's hard not to see the Legion of Doom as part of a long history of white supremacy in our country when you learn, as the AP reported, that they scrawled messages like, we are the future Aryan lords, and Pascal is now Nazi territory. This is like the opposite of what we're all brought up to believe about America. This is not who we are. Even as whitewashed as our history can be, there's these ideals they discuss. Due process, freedom of religion, voting rights. This is what made us different. It made us better. But now we don't even champion them. We're hardly America. I don't recognize this, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And it's sad, and uh, it doesn't bode well for our, our long-term prospects. We're no longer a beacon on the hill. We embarrass ourselves. It is embarrassing. But I also feel compelled to note that the fact that we're even discussing these ideals matters. Reckoning with our past and with our failures matters. And it's a credit to the American spirit that we still have the freedom to do that. I also feel compelled to note that these were kids, entitled kids, kids who absorbed and enacted racist ideas, kids who did real damage, but kids nevertheless. Listening to this story, I kept wondering, where are all the adults? But the thing is, kids don't invent this out of thin air. Adults can be just as entitled, if not more. Whether we're talking about La Sombra Negra and MS-13, or the Legion of Doom, 
we see people willing to do terrible things to preserve some identity, some allegiance. That plays out at the national level, too. Personally, I think that if our American identity is anything, it's schizophrenic. It's defined by lofty idealism as much as it is by a history of oppression. But there are Americans who think they know exactly what America is. They're willing to take the law into their own hands to don that invisible badge. And right now, they're patrolling the southern border. Some claim they're even impersonating law enforcement and illegally detaining undocumented immigrants. Before we get into Act 3, which focuses on immigration at our southern border, I should note that the recent tragic shootings in Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, are obviously relevant to the discussion, but hadn't yet occurred when we recorded. I just want to say that my heart goes out to the victims of these shootings, and that I hope talking through these difficult subjects will help prevent further bloodshed in the future. Citizens feel like they either have to form a militia, build a wall or something for their own safety, or we whatever We build the wall, build fencing outside of El Paso, and they say... New border security without a wall, which is wasteful and doesn't solve the problem. I think he's going to declare a state of emergency. There's a crisis at our southern border. But is it the influx of immigrants, or our response, our policies and security measures? Everyone seems to disagree. Are migrants legit asylum seekers or con artists? How much does this have to do with drug trafficking and how much to do with xenophobia? It's a thorny question that's been drawing blood at Thanksgiving dinners for decades. And the contentious points only become more so when vigilantes get involved. Let's go to New Mexico now. A man has been arrested by the FBI for allegedly impersonating a border patrol agent. Larry Mitchell Hopkins is believed to be a member of an armed group that's been holding migrants at the southern border. The group is known as United Constitutional Patriots. The United Constitutional Patriots are not the first armed group of private U.S. citizens to take it upon themselves to patrol the border. But they've arrived at a particularly fraught moment, when conversations about immigration so often devolve into outrage versus outrage. That's not how I roll. I wanted to try to get a 360-degree perspective on this subject, and so I reached out to people on very different sides. I wanted to speak directly with Larry Mitchell Hopkins, the leader of the UCP. This country was built on three things, God, guns, and guts. But he's currently in custody and wasn't able to speak with me. I did manage to contact his lawyer, Kelly O'Connell. I also spoke with Peter Simonson, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico, and Javier Guerra, chief of police in Sunland Park, New Mexico, who's on the ground where the UCP is operating. Full disclosure, I'm a card-carrying contributor to the ACLU, but I took great pains to give every voice in this segment a fair hearing. I asked them all the same question. What exactly is happening at the border right now? Is there a crisis? It seems like a crisis to me. Cities are overrun. There's no place to put people. How is that not a crisis? That's Hopkins lawyer, Kelly O'Connell. 
Well, I mean, there certainly are much higher number of families coming across the border. That's Peter Simonson of the ACLU. People whose children are being threatened or sexually harassed by gang members or by local law enforcement that have had their ranches taken over by drug cartels. You know, the situation is dire. These people may be legitimately escaping horrific violence, but it's hard to prove. The question then becomes, which direction do you err in? Simonson defaults to believing the migrants. O'Connell, who represents Larry Mitchell Hopkins, not so much. For the vast majority of them, they're just going to have talking points that were delivered by coyotes or friends that have done the same thing. Or as one UCP member put it in an interview with the LA Sun, We have too many people coming through the border claiming false asylum. There are people making false asylum claims, as The New Yorker has reported. But a vast majority of them, as O'Connell says, that's a strong claim with little evidence to back it up. To accuse these families of coming to this country with quote-unquote false asylum claims is to just deeply dishonor the pain and the suffering and the torment that has driven them to leave their communities. The question of whether asylum claims are true is complicated by the fact that it's not only migrants attempting to cross the border. It's also cartel smugglers and human traffickers. Chief Javier Guerra, who polices the border town of Sunland Park where the UCP have been operating, says the cartels see this crisis as an opportunity. Drug smugglers are taking advantage of saying, you know what, let's send this group over here and let Border Patrol and law enforcement take care of them in that corner and let us go around the other corner where there's no law enforcement and we'll pass our drugs through there. So I think the average American just thinks about people who are kind of desperate or looking for a better life, whether they support them coming in. But the situation is so much more complicated than that, and it's a lot more dangerous. What's so difficult about these immigration debates is that people seem to disagree on every level. From Simonson at the ACLU, to Chief Guerra, to O'Connell representing the leader of the UCP, How you characterize this crisis falls on a spectrum that runs from desperation to criminality. And where you fall on this spectrum has to color how you feel about armed vigilante groups taking it upon themselves to patrol the border. So what's indisputable about what they're doing? They arm themselves heavily with semi-automatic weapons. They conceal their identities with black face masks. They wear official-looking badges, and then they go out into remote parts of the desert and take people hostage. Young mothers carrying toddlers and infants being forced to huddle in the sand in the darkness and the black of night. You know, they're on their knees, they're sitting in the sand, and they're surrounded by these guys in military camouflage. Based on the UCP's own video footage, Simonson's description is accurate. And that's what's led to one of their members being arrested for impersonating an officer. We uh, just uh, detained two illegals. The invasion continues. So far, they've detained hundreds of immigrants, many of them children. These are facts we can all agree on. And in some cases, they're waving their weapons at these people. But here, there's disagreement. 
there's no obvious video footage of them pointing their weapons at people. And the way O'Connell describes their actions, they sound far more mundane. They would say, halt or wait, something like that. They were dressed up, they had masks on, and some of them were in camo, and some had weapons to defend themselves. And then they would uh, get in contact with the Border Patrol who would then come down and apprehend them. That was the idea anyway. What the UCP is doing is one question. But who are these guys exactly? What's driving them to do this? In their own words, We are a group of basically volunteer Americans who've come down here. We're retired vets, retired law enforcement, special forces. We've come down here not as a militia, but as a group of Americans to help protect the the border crisis that's going on down here. Um, This is a national security issue. Um, Obviously, uh, uh, Border Patrol is part of this as well. We're trying to assist them. As far as in the overload, there's areas right now that the Border Patrol can't cover. That doesn't sound so bad. But the UCP also posts the occasional Islamophobic meme on their Facebook page, like one with a picture of U.S. soldiers with the caption, 72 Virgins Dating Service. It's stuff like that that makes the UCP come across as not the most compassionate group. Even so, O'Connell has sympathies for the UCP, though he did recommend they cease their activities before they got arrested. They didn't listen. It wasn't very sophisticated, and it was not meant to get into the headlines. They felt frustrated, They, you know, asking themselves, how can I help? Let me go down to the border and see what I can do. Peter Simonson of the ACLU sees the UCP much differently. These are not well-intentioned people. Um, They are, in many respects, thugs. They don't care about asylum seekers. For them, asylum seekers are uniformly con artists coming to this uh, country to take advantage of us. They bring um, openly racist and white nationalist views about what it means to be a patriot, what it means to protect the Constitution, um, and who they should do that for. PayPal and GoFundMe both kicked the UCP off their platforms, claiming the UCP violated their terms of service, which don't allow for hate, violence, or discriminatory intolerance. But neither company provided evidence of how specifically the UCP violated these terms. I combed through the UCP's social media accounts explicitly looking for hateful rhetoric and incitement to violence. I found a couple Islamophobic memes, to be sure, but I didn't find the white supremacist talking points you hear from white nationalists. In fact, I found Larry Mitchell Hopkins saying this on his UCP radio program. What is an American? An American is somebody who was born in the United States of America. Americans are people who have come across and legally become American citizens. I have no problem with anybody coming into our country. They do not have the right to come into our country without going through the proper channels. I don't care if a person is green, blue, black, or white. Color does not make a person. Their heart makes a person. How they conduct themselves is how you look at somebody. There are certainly border security advocates who have expressed flagrantly racist views in support of their actions. But in terms of the UCP specifically, 
I won't claim to see into their hearts. I can only judge them on their actions. So, is what they're doing legal? I asked Peter Simonson of the ACLU what the UCP's actual rights were in terms of their activities at the border. I mean, their rightful claim ends where the First Amendment ends. They have the right on public property to organize themselves or, or private property where they've been allowed on to observe what's taking place in that area and calling to the Border Patrol. It is their right. Uh, any claims that they are acting under a citizen's arrest authority are preposterous. If Simonson and O'Connell are at opposite ends of the spectrum, it's Chief Guerra, who actually has to deal with the UCP on the ground, who's right in the middle. This is the first for me ever to deal with a group like this. And I've been in law enforcement 43 years now. When I first went to talk to the self-proclaimed general, I asked him, are you, under what authority are you here? And he said, presidential authority through the president and also through Border Patrol. They asked us to be here, so they did. Okay. So I left it at that. I was not going to get into a, uh, any type of a confrontation. So then I told Border Patrol, uh, they're saying that you guys had asked them to be here. So now, so gee, we never asked them to come here. They just showed up. You know, a sticking point for me um, is the impersonation of law enforcement because, you know, there there is great power in, in bearing a badge, even if that badge is false. I mean, Ted Bundy was able to get people to trust him and then he murdered them because he was impersonating law enforcement. At no time when I actually went to speak to these individuals did they ever identify themselves as law enforcement. I did, however, witness that a couple of them did have a badge around the collar of uh, their neck that read uh, Fugitive Apprehension Team. And as someone who actually bears a legitimate badge, how do you feel about those who are pretending? It wasn't so much of an issue of that. It was more to make sure that they were not violating anyone's civil rights, regardless what country you come from. You are protected by the U.S. Constitution once you are here in the U.S. I do have an issue of someone who's a convicted felon carrying a firearms. At the time that I first met this guy, Larry, I do remember seeing him carrying a, a weapon. He had a weapon on him, but at that point, I, I didn't know anything about him. My client, Larry Hopkins, was the mm -hmm. cook. You know, he's an older guy. He was fairly heavy. He had some health issues. He, you know, he had kind of dodgy knees. And so he was in this little... Um, trailer that they had cooking and he wasn't out on the border so i'm not even you know i'm not protecting him he wasn't even out there mm -hmm. uh he, from, from he what just I understand. founded the group right yeah he was the the kind of the commander mm -hmm. but to get to your point there is a big difference between whether you're holding a gun or whether you you're brandishing it pointing at somebody that's a huge deal Okay. I mean, just because you're hold, you've got a rifle around your neck and it's kind of bobbing around, that doesn't mean that you're pointing it at people. Maybe not, but the ACLU is worried about how precarious that situation is and how easily it might erupt into violence. Our greatest concern was that a group of families would be under gunpoint and somebody in the middle of the crowd would reach into his pocket and pull out something that one of the vigilantes took to be a firearm or some other 
scenario emerged that led the vigilantes to fire on them. And, you know, these are semi-automatic weapons, so it doesn't take a whole lot to cause a great deal of damage. What's your understanding of their relationship with actual official border control? That has been an outstanding concern of ours, that the videos seem to show um, an unusually cozy relationship between the two groups. O'Connell doesn't seem to think a cozy relationship is a bad thing. If somebody called up the Border Patrol and say, I was just walking down the street and I saw, you know, 150 people across the border, can you come down here? What is the Border Patrol going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a job description. Mm-hmm. If the Border Patrol is undermanned, if a group of volunteers shows up, what's the downside? One downside. There's no guarantee that these volunteers are properly trained to handle volatile situations or deadly weapons. I think for law enforcement was, let law enforcement do their work. I mean, that's what we get paid for. Let us do our work. We're the ones that are trained. We're the ones that have gone through the academy for months at a time. Another downside, vigilantes, or volunteers, depending on who you talk to, aren't part of the chain of legal authority that provides accountability and redress when things go wrong. This is particularly important for the ACLU. The key problem here is we don't entrust the enforcement of federal laws to private citizens. And Mm -hmm. these folks are vigilantes in every sense of the word. They have taken it upon themselves to enforce the law as they think it should be enforced. And, you know, we just don't do that in this country, that uh, we don't track down a person we observe speeding on the highway and drive him to the side of the road and hold him under, under gunpoint and call law enforcement to come pick the guy up or give him a ticket. You know, there are mm-hmm. a number of scenarios where for private citizens to be enforcing the law would you know, just create absolute chaos. But from O'Connell's perspective... Through the eyes of the UCP, it's already chaos at the border. Chaos that federal authorities are unable to contain. You know, in their mind, they're constitutional. They're protecting the border in the only way that they would know how. If you, if you ask them, they would tell you this, that it's a matter of extreme importance because anybody can cross the border into the United States right now. You've got kind of a clarion call out to the whole world that if you have a way to get here, you can become an American citizen. And I'm not saying they're the same, but what's the difference between what these guys were doing and the founding fathers or the the battle for independence is that they were both kind of operating out of the law. They're both trying to, to protect America. Both groups of people that felt constrained by what was going on and alarmed and acted out in the way that they could to try to help make America safe or help make it better. That's how they would explain it. And no doubt that appeal to the Constitution in their name, the United Constitutional Patriots, is designed to confer legitimacy to their vigilante actions, an appeal to a higher authority than the local ordinances of Sunland Park, New Mexico. It's something that rankles Peter Simonson of the ACLU. The notion that these folks cast themselves as defenders of the principles that are ensconced in the Constitution is such a hypocritical position when what it really involves is oppressing people because 
they are marginalized because of their race, their national origin, their status as immigrants. You know, many Americans don't realize that immigrants, whether they come here as authorized or not, uh, actually do enjoy some rights under our Constitution, due process being foremost among them. And what's a higher authority than the Constitution? Ironically, the United Constitutional Patriots would say... There's a law above the law, the law of nature, natural law, however you want to define it. If you see somebody breaking the law and the person might be dangerous, do individuals have a responsibility to get involved? That's what I would ask people. Maybe, maybe you need more of these type of people walking around on the border. Not breaking the law, but what if they took a bunch of volunteers and trained them and gave them a status, didn't pay them, but said, we'll train you how to be at the border, how to not break the law. You can help us out. Would that be wrong? And I think ultimately that's, it's the question of sovereignty. A country has the right to define its own beliefs and act on those beliefs to further its goals. And it, it seems to me like there's a strong and to me a very strange argument that we just have to step aside as people flood in the country. We don't know who they are, what their background is. We know that they're not going to be processed by the court system for the vast majority, 95% of them. Do we really have to accept that? Are we in control? Do we have the right to set our own course and seek our own destiny? The U.S. Department of Justice says that, actually, it's more like 44% that don't show up for their hearings. While The Washington Post reports that when counting appearances instead of completed cases, 81% of migrant families attended all their court hearings. But even so, Kelly O'Connell raises an important question. Do we owe citizenship and a better life to anyone and everyone who crosses our borders? Or do we have the right to control who comes in and who doesn't? But let's remember that when we say we, we're talking about a nation. And in our nation, there are laws that govern all citizens, and then further laws that govern who can and should enforce laws, and how those laws can and can't be enforced. Well, Minda, the law is the law. And just like you, I have to follow the law as well. I'm no better than you. I mean, the law is the law, and the law's got to be followed. There's a reason why those rules are there and the laws are there, you know. Mm. And no one's above the law. And yet, that's not how we portray our heroes these days. Sure. Is it fun to see uh, Iron Man uh, beating down the bad guy without concern for, did he get a fair trial? (laughs) You know, was it excessive use of force? It almost sounds too silly to say. But at the end of the day, when it comes to us and our families and our friends, um, I guarantee that each and every one of us hopes that we will be treated um, with the protection of those rights, even if we have done wrong, uh, that we're dealt with in a manner that uh, respects our due process and uh, meets our proportionate justice. Is it fun to dream about the ability to handle our enemies in such an outrageous way? Sure, but does it serve the best interests of our country? Absolutely not. When a vigilante takes the law into his own hands, he's sacrificing due process. Is that always bad? Sometimes, 
the systems we develop to deliver justice get ossified and bloated. Bureaucracies stop functioning. It's a real problem. And whether we're talking about gang violence, drug dealers in a school, or the immigration crisis, the dysfunction of the legit authorities can seem like an obvious motive to just do something, solve the problem. I don't claim to have the answers. What I do know is that humans are tribal. We form in-groups by labeling out-groups and by rejecting them. And when vigilante action happens in groups under an invisible badge, these tribal tendencies go into overdrive and they blind us. So often, by labeling people, we make it harder to see who they really are. Next time, on The Truth About True Crime, the targeted, the victimized, band together and become vigilantes. From anti-rape gangs in India to anti-homophobe patrols in San Francisco. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at SundanceTV.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.